Excuse me, will I just do the furniture? Modern church. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. Nigel, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, thank you for the welcome I've received. Thank you to musicians. Thank you for the coffee that was offered. Church takes work, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, I think sometimes, you know, it's good to breathe out and realize that actually what happens before a service starts is... Um, is, is busy and a lot. So thank you for everything you've done. I really, really appreciate it as someone who goes to a church where the chairs have to be put out and put back and yada, yada, yada. Um, and uh, yeah, so as Joe said, I've come from the, London this morning. I, I live in southeast London. My name is Rachel Griffiths and um, I was living in India with my family, the family I lived in India with, and my husband Andy and my two daughters, Phoebe, who's 16, and Fleur, who's 14, uh, none of whom are here now. Uh, uh, you know, Two of them are like, oh, yeah, I would come, but, you know, I've been invited to so-and-so's house. And so the kids are, I don't know, they're in different houses across London. And uh, I do know, I do know where they are. And uh, my husband is uh, in India, not for International Justice Mission, but for the role he has now looking after a foundation that uh, funds grassroots organizations across the world to use sport for social transformation. So that's kind of where we're at now. I'm going to tell you a bit more about us um, as I talk. But the other thing I want to say is a huge thank you to um, the group of you who pray, is it once a month? Edward and Catherine, where are you? Thank you so much. I can't, um, how can I tell you how much that means to people who work for IJM um, to know that there are people who actually put their coats on on a Wednesday night and Tuesday night, schlep out to a prayer meeting that oftentimes you won't want to go to because that's prayer meetings, right? We don't always want to go to them. Um, and that you bother and the people who are with you that they bother, it is actually the game changer. So thank you, and please do not ever feel that it's a waste of your time. It's incredible. It is moving mountains, quite literally. So, um, well, not literally, but it feels like a mountain inside for the people who work for IJM. So thank you for that. Okay. Um, we've got some, I just need to... I, I do workshops. I do theatre workshops in schools, and so I'm not used to people not talking back to me. So I, I, <laughs> so I just need to know who we've got in the room. We've got the young people staying in. Fantastic. Who's kind of... I mean, 11? Is someone 11, or are you older than 11? What have we got? So we've got 11 to 18. Awesome. I'm really, really glad you're here. Um, this is massively about you and about any students. Any students who are here? Hello. <laughs> Lunch is soon. <laughs> um, this is massively for you as well. Um, you are uh, the generation who can end slavery in our lifetime. Just put that out there. Um, all right. So I am here on Freedom Sunday representing International Justice Mission to tell you about a gross injustice, many, many grotesque injustices that are taking place around the world today. The injustice brought upon the family in South India who have a $25 debt to pay off and they go and accept work in a brick kiln in South India where it's very, very hot and they go to work uh, making the bricks and carrying the bricks and stacking the bricks for many, many hours a day and they think this is their job and then the time comes to be paid and they're not paid and they realize that eventually they're never going to be paid and they talk to the owner about being paid 
as he said that they would be when they took the job, and he beats them and asks them to go back to work, and he doesn't feed them properly. And their children, as soon as they're able to walk, are also asked, told, to carry stones and bricks upon their heads and in their hands, and they get bruises and they get calluses, and they can't go to school, and they get ill, and they don't get any medical treatment. And the baby needs medicine, and the baby dies because the baby is not allowed to be taken to hospital. These people are trapped in what is called bonded labor, modern-day slavery, and it's illegal. The injustice that is also perpetrated against the girl in Mumbai, who, in order to raise some money for her family, accepts a job from a distant relative who says, come to the city, come and work for me. You could be a maid. It's domestic work. It'll pay well. It'll help your mum and your dad and your younger siblings to go to schools. And so she goes, and then she quickly realizes that when she walks into this room uh, that maybe she's not in the right place. And she asks what's happening. And they say, don't worry, don't worry. Have a glass of water. So she has the glass of water, and something is in the water that is spiked, and so she falls asleep. She's knocked out. She wakes up. She realizes that she has been raped. She has no clothes on. She asks them what's happened, and they beat her, and then begins her life of being of serving men multiple times a day, and she's never going to be able to leave, and no one is coming to rescue her, and she has been trapped in slavery. The injustice which the boy faces in Ghana, again, from a poor family, needs to earn some money for his relatives, and so a, an invitation comes to work in the fishing industry, and the family think, this is great, off you go, go and work on Lake Volta. He goes to work on Lake Volta, and what he realizes is that he's in a Uh, he's in the fishing industry, which means him being placed in a canoe. Uh, I say a canoe. I don't know what the word would be, but it's an open boat. It has no shelter. It has no covering. And he can't swim. But he's sent out in this boat with perhaps one or two other boys into the middle of the lake. And they stay there night and day and in the storm and in the rain and in the dry. And they can't get off the boat because they're in the middle of the lake. They're terrified because they can't swim. Sometimes they fall in. Some drown. And the owner, who is their employer, but he's their owner now, he comes by in a motorboat and he gives them some food just to keep them ticking over. When the boys are too old, they uh, are no use anymore because they need too much food. And they have uh, injuries from the motor on the boat and their fish uh, are sometimes dangerous and they're fish that bite. They have calluses, they're injured, uh, and no one is coming to rescue them and no one knows they're there. They are there now, as I speak. The injustice faced by the woman in Gulu in Uganda, whose husband dies. And as her husband has died, she's no longer a member of that community. So her husband's relatives kick her out of her house. Her house isn't just her home, it's her livelihood. She grows food. She sells the food. It's her business. So she's kicked out of her home and her business. And if she doesn't leave the house, they threaten to burn it down. So she has no income. She has no livelihood. And no one seems to care. The injustice faced by the girl in Guatemala who is sexually abused by her stepfather and it takes five years for anyone to take notice and bring justice. And the injustice faced by children, this is a more recent one that International Justice Mission are working on, who are forced to perform acts in front of cameras for the gratification of Western men. I'm not saying Western men to make you feel bad, but if you want to say, not in my name this might be a morning to stand up against that. So you could say to me, well, isn't it illegal? And I will say to you that every crime that I've just mentioned, all of which are true, um, is illegal. In all the countries that it takes place, it is illegal. But the problem is that the justice systems are broken. And so the police 
aren't trained enough, or they don't care enough, or they don't know enough to, to come and, and arrest people. The system is broken so that when people get to court, justice does not prevail. So people act with impunity. I realize that this is white font. Next time I use a darker one. But um, last week, some new statistics came out about slavery. Um, statistics from the International Labour Organization and a foundation called the Walk Free Foundation. And they have discovered through extensive research that in 2016, 40 million people, 40 million were in slavery around the world. Five million of them were in sexual forced labor, so prostitution or performing acts in front of a camera, as I've just mentioned. And women between the age of 15 and 44 are more likely to die from gender-based violence than they are from motor accidents, cancer, war, or malaria combined. So we're in church, and I'm talking to you about this here, and we've been singing worship songs, and so the question is, where is God in this, and does God mind that this is happening? Well, of course he does, but one of the difficult things when you encounter these injustices is to know how to how to talk to God about it, how to look for him in it and say, where are you? What do you do about this? What do I do about this? So uh, in the Bible, we do see an awful lot of reference to God's um, concern about injustice. I don't mean for you to be able to necessarily read all those verses. It's just that they're just a few of many, many verses that you will, I'm sure, know uh, about what God says about injustice. It is of great concern to him. These people that I've mentioned, the 40 million, are all of great concern to him. And while the numbers aren't always helpful for us, because 40 million, you can't get your head around 40 million, to God, he knows, of course, he knows each of those people, and they are very much on his heart. So in Exodus, he says, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, and I have come down to rescue them. In Job, he says, he saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful, so the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. Psalm 140 says, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Um, For the Lord is a God of justice, it says in Isaiah, and then in the psalm, He says, because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise. I will protect them from those who malign them. So why have we got this problem of injustice and why doesn't God change it? You know, I mean, it's maybe a question that you ask in your day-to-day lives when something isn't changing. Why Why isn't God seemingly acting more in this crisis? Well, he is. But one of the the ways that God is choosing to work, and God always chooses to work, I think, is through us. So I keep thinking a lot lately about the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, you know, Sunday school classic. But I think the bit I never realized when I was hearing that story as I was little and growing up and was um, the really key role of the little boy. Not that he was willing. You hear he's willing and he's obedient and he's kind of like slightly patronizing. Wasn't he good? I don't see it like that anymore. The, Jesus could have fed those people. He just could, of course, he could have fed them. He's God. He's fully man, fully God. He could have fed the people. But he chose to take what the boy had. He chose to collaborate with that young boy. He chose to co-create. And he chose that miracle to be a partnership between himself and a person. And that's what he's doing in this work against slavery. He, He can 
um, perform miracles, and he does. And IJM have seen miracle after miracle. But he chooses to be at work with us, and so we must act, and we must enable God to arise and be part of God's arising. So uh, international justice mission are very much in collaboration with with God. They are the largest uh, casework-based anti-slavery organization in the world, and they protect the poor from violence throughout the developing world. And they partner, one of their key things is they partner with local authorities. So they're very committed to working with local police, to uh, collaborating with local government officials, that this is a partnership. This is not a kind of parachuting in and doing this great work. It's very much about working within systems in order that systems can be uh, repaired and improved. They work in 18 offices around the world, um, across 10 different countries, and their headquarters are in Washington, D.C. And we were uh, living and working in Chennai in South India. Their vision statement, IJM's vision, is to rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. And there's a lot of talk now within IJM about ending slavery within our lifetime, students, young people. The model that they use, I'm just going to give you a highlight of how they work. There's a lot of anti-slavery organizations all doing brilliant work, but this is the model of international justice mission. They rescue. So teams of investigators will have been at work underground uh, in different contexts, working out where slavery is. And in India, it's really difficult sometimes to see because you might have a building site where the people are free to come and go, but it looks identical to a building site where people are not free to come and go. So you have investigators who work for months and months and months investigating. They smuggle phones into the people in these facilities. They try to build relationships. If someone is allowed out perhaps to go to the market, as is sometimes the case, the investigators befriend them and try to begin to form relationships with them. That work is deeply oppressive for the investigators because they see and they meet people in slavery. They can't just go and get them like that. They have to wait. have to wait to form the operation, wait for the police to agree, wait for the government official to agree, wait for all the administration to happen. Then they go back to work the next day and they've met someone in slavery the day before and they have to keep going. So if you're praying, pray for them. They are under a lot, they're in a lot of darkness. Uh, Once people are are rescued by IJM, they undergo whatever the context they've been in, whatever country they're in, they have a two-year aftercare program. So where we were in South India, that involved people learning how to live again, learning how to find a new trade, a different way of earning money, because even though they've been in slavery, that was their job. So people have returned to their village, their native place, as it's referred to, taught uh, a job. They have perhaps had to neglect their kids, and so there's a rebuilding of how to care for the family. Uh, domestic violence is very, very, very common across India. It's just not... Well, it is frowned upon in the way it is here, but it's, it's just endemic and uh, seen as very normal in certain communities. And so I know that when my husband was on one aftercare training, he, he heard the aftercare team talking to uh, the men and saying to them, um, hands up if, if you beat your wife and hands go up, normal. And, uh, and then they said, well, did, who, hands up if you were beaten by your slave owner. And they said, well, how did you feel when you were being beaten? And there's a colossal mind shift that needs to take place for people to go, oh yeah, so I'm perpetrating that on my wife and probably my children. So... Um, that's part of the training. Um, with, I had the privilege of meeting some girls in Mumbai who had been rescued from forced marriage and from sex trafficking. And of course, they're undergoing therapy uh, and they're kept in safe homes. Often those girls can't go to their home because it might be their parents who sold them, even if they didn't realize what they were doing. So two years 
of aftercare. And then uh, the, the legal teams kick into touch as well because restraining the perpetrators is crucial. Very, very difficult. Not easy. To, you just don't go up to someone and arrest them in these contexts. The, uh, in India, again, uh, in, in bonded labor, the owners are unable just to disappear and they open up shop somewhere else. So the system is not like, you know, you don't dial 999 as someone comes and gets arrested. It just doesn't work like that. Um, and so there's a huge amount of effort and time and money and energy that is required to uh, put together the case to, to, to restrain the perpetrators. And then, of course, the next challenge is to get the case to court and for it to be upheld in court, where oftentimes there is corruption and everything is conspiring against this working. And yet, there are stories of hope. Um, I'm going to show you now a clip of a... Oh, that's us. That came up wrong. This is my family. This is sort of what we get up to. That's the question mark. I don't have those missionary photos. You know those ones where everyone looks really kind of like holy and... Um, we used to have to, we had to have our photos taken for IJ when we joined them. And I was like, I, I don't want to be in one of those missionary photos. With respect to missionaries, but everyone looking so smiley. So we do sort of bonkers photos instead. All right, I'm going to show you a film of Lake Volta in Ghana. Have I done that right, chaps? Do I have to press play? Small point. Je
I wanted to tell you a little bit about how we got involved in IJM, um, because anyone can. Um, yeah, so that's Andy. I think we're dancing to a Queen song. I'm not sure. That's Phoebe, and that's me, and that's Fleur. Um, we, uh, in 2011, if I just tell you kind of what life... Uh, by the way, your clock, is it, it's not actually working, is it? It's been 20 to 12 quite a long time. <laughs> is it 20 to 12? That's amazing. Some miracle is taking place because it feels like it's been 20 to 12 for ages and I was going to have to cut short. All right. Um, at, in 2011, context was Andy was a lawyer, a media lawyer. He was the global legal director of Endemol, who make Big Brother another really high-quality TV. Uh, but, he, you know, <laughs> as far as media law goes, he was kind of at the top of the game. Um, we lived, and we still do, well, we do again, uh, in Hernhill, southeast London. The girls were in primary school, local primary school. I was doing the kind of combination of keep ship afloat and work uh, in theatre uh, for different arts organisations doing projects in schools. Um, and, you know, supporting our local church, kind of doing what you do. Um, privileged. Uh, following Jesus. I guess... Uh, we kind of hit on a midlife crisis. Um, that's the kind of way that I often express it, but uh, I would probably, if I dig deeper, I would say that um, that I was, I think I was bored, and um, I wasn't sure that we'd got it right, and was it all stacking up, and kind of, is this it? Now, asking, is this it, is quite a privileged question, isn't it? Because you usually ask if this is it when things are all right. Do you know what I mean? If you're in dire straits, you want it to change. But if, you're, if things are okay, you kind of ask. So I, I recognize that it was a privileged question to be able to ask. Um, and I'm, I'm not someone who kind of... I guess one of my greatest fears in life is mediocrity, really. Like, it will just tick along. Is that literally... Is that it? Is it, is it going to tick along? And is that what being a Christian is? Because I, I, like, I didn't sign up for that. So... Uh, we decided to shake it up a bit, and we looked at... And Andy, by the way, was... Um, while he had sort of got to this position of so-called success, however you want to frame success, and he uh, realised that it was very empty. And that, you know, a lot of Christians say that, but and, and I'm really big on Christians not necessarily having kind of working in Christian jobs. That's not a comment about that at all. But I think you've got to know that you're meant to be there, and he was beginning to feel emptier and emptier and emptier. And ultimately, he said, what I'm working for is income. So we were like, all right, what's going on here? This has got to change. So uh, we, uh, well, one day I went to Lewis, because like in London, everyone moves to Lewis, like it's a thing. Um, it's nice, and it's sort of near London, but you feel like you've moved, and, you know, it's a great secondary school, and people do that. So I went to Lewis for a day, and I came back, and I thought, that's not, that's not going to be enough, is it? I, I moved to Lewis. Yay! So uh, we started to look at Andy moving into the charitable sector. He's a missionary kid. His parents are, were Bible translators in an indigenous Indian tribe in Brazil. I was not interested in doing that, thank you very much. Um, so, you know, luckily God knows what we're like, so he didn't stick me into an indigenous Indian tribe in Brazil. But my husband had grown up in that context, loved it. Um, and so we have within us this kind of like, where should we go somewhere? And our children were at a good age for, for, for getting on a plane um, and going somewhere else. So... Um, over a period of uh, kind of, I guess it all took a year, um, we began to talk to International Justice Mission because we'd heard about them. We'd heard about a friend of a friend who was a barrister who'd moved from London to Bangalore to free slaves. And we're like, ooh, can you do that? Lawyers can do that? That sounds exciting. So let's have a look at that. Um, and 
we uh, began to talk to International Justice Mission, it became pretty clear that we were going to be quite a good fit for one another. And so we, uh, in July, August of 2011, packed up our house, packed up the school, you know, kind of left. Um, and Andy was offered the job of field office director in the office in Chennai. And uh, a week before we were meant to fly out, uh, we were told that we were not going to get given our visas. Um, so we thought, oh, okay, well, we're going to stay with mum for a week or two. And five months later, after um, my family, I know that I'm not looking at them because they're like wincing, because they had to live that um, more than we did in a way. Um, we had five months of, of just not knowing what was happening, if we were going to go tomorrow or never. And you start going, did we hear God? Are we meant to be doing this? And I got sacked as the homeschooler. Kids sacked me. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> not great at maths. Good at French, um, but not great in maths. So, uh, yeah, so we eventually did leave. And on the 3rd of... Um, oh, yes, I'll tell you about that in a minute. On the 3rd of uh, January, it's a terrible photo, but I just want to show you, that's us at Heathrow going goodbye. 2012. On the journey towards working out if we were going to do this work with IJM, um, I happened, and I did kind of happen upon... A, a verse. I was reading something in Hebrews and I just thought oh, I'd just read a bit more. And in that reading a bit more, I came across these words. Um, and this is from the message version. It says, so let's go outside where Jesus is, where the action is, not trying to be privileged insiders, but taking our place, our share in the abuse of Jesus. This insider world is not our home. We have our eyes peeled for the city about to come. So uh, I had felt that God had given me let's go outside as three words. And in fact, we had fridge magnets made and we gave them to loads of our friends. And so really nice over London, I go to my mate's houses and I said, let's go outside magnet on the fridge. Because I felt like God gave us a strap line. He gave me a, uh, gave me a sentence, gave me a, yeah, gave me a strap line. And actually, interestingly, it kind of carries on. So we went outside. We were very privileged. We are very privileged. We were privileged in India. I'm not pretending that we went and kind of packed it all in. And it's a job. Working for IJM is a job. You know, we had an income. Um, but we, uh, we just felt that we needed to go outside. And because God loves me, it's the words uh, where the action is. And he knows what I'm like. So he said, you want action? I'm going to dump you in Chennai in South India and see how you get on. Well, I didn't get on very well. I can honestly tell you at first. I would say that... Um, for the first six months, I was a bit of a car crash. The culture shock um, is immense. Anyone who's been to India will know that. It kind of is a sensory overload, and uh, it kind of knocked us sideways. But um, whereas Andy had a job to do, I was kind of absorbing and absorbing um, everyone's shock. And uh, our children went to an international school, so they were very fortunate to do that. But it, uh, it took a while. It took a while. Eventually, I was able to get involved in some theatre projects and do some work with some girls who had been rescued from sex trafficking and some theatre with women in a slum, and that's all good. But that took a long time. And I just found my feet, and it was found, we found it was kind of the right time to come back. So um, we... I can, I can stand here today, and I can tell you that it was hard, but I can also tell you that it was the, the best thing the best thing that we've ever done. And it's really hard to imagine that anything's going to come close to that. And really, that's what I want to sort of say to you today about getting involved in the work of justice and partnering with International Justice Mission in any way you can. It takes you into a very dark place, even if you're going to, you know, you don't have to move to India. But from wherever you are, if you begin to dig deep, and those of you who pray once a month will know that if you begin to investigate what's really taking place and to try to understand where God is in it, it's, you get taken to a dark place and it's horrible, but I believe we've got to go there. 
Um, we're not unaccompanied there, but we've got to get into the darkness in order to understand it in, on a deeper level. And so we were oftentimes involved or in, you know, hearing stories of deep, deep darkness, but I think we needed to go there to encounter it. And of course, that's where you encounter God. And why was it such a meaningful experience? Well, because you know, you know you're alive, however hard it was. And it was hard. And it was hard in funny ways. Like sometimes we were just really bored or lonely. Um, you know, we were between expat people and NGO people. We, like mission, we were kind of in between. We didn't quite know where we belonged. We didn't used to get invited to many parties. Don't like that. Like getting invited to parties. So, um, so we were taken into this, into this darkness. And I think anyone who prays for this kind of work will understand uh, what I mean. But I think something happens to us when we get involved in the work of justice. And so I, don't, I didn't ever work for IJM, but I lived it. And I still do. And I support the UK office. And that's why I'm here today. And I think if I can say anything, I think something happens to us when we get involved in the work of justice. And I would say definitely that if you want your faith to get shaken up if you if it needs more meaning if you're going through the motions a bit you know we can all do that as as christians if you if it's becoming a habit or you just can't get where that where's this excitement where's this life to the full that jesus talks about i do believe that it's in the work of justice not exclusively but significantly within the work of justice because i mean it's a call on all of our lives it isn't actually a choice um so what will happen to us when we get involved in the work of justice, where there's that really famous phrase in Isaiah, uh, passage in Isaiah 58, which I'll just read to you, when God says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? I'll cut down to the bottom, and it says, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will shine in the dark, rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. There are so many promises in there for us. If we don't sit around talking about things and bickering and worrying about, well, me worrying about the PowerPoint, and things like, you know, just to get too insular, if we begin to be heartbroken with things that break God's heart, something is going to happen in us and it will happen even if you're not relocating from your home. Um... I remember then going like we do with the Bible. Oh, wow, Andy's, Andy's the field officer. His light's going to shine in the darkness. He's going to be full of... And he actually was exhausted. And, uh, you know, I kept going, where's this light? Where, you know, where? he was exhausted. The work is exhausting. People said to us, it's going to be great for your marriage. <laughs> Christians say stuff, don't they? Why do we say stuff like that? You don't know it's going to be great for my marriage. Do you know what I mean? So people would say that. I remember, I'll share this with you in all honesty. I remember looking at Andy about three months in and thinking, I don't even know if I like you anymore. And I mean that seriously, because we were just head down coping. Good for my marriage. We did survive, of course, and I would say we thrived, but not in that way that we all kind of think it's going to be shiny and fluffy. It was not shiny. It wasn't fluffy. Um, uh, and we did actually, what did happen is that we, we consolidated as a team <coughs> an extraordinary thing for a family to live through together. So we consolidated the team, but it wasn't in those sort of, you know, Christian books with the kind of couple on the front and the backlighting. None of that. None of that. You aren't going to get that injustice, I can tell you. Um, but we did feel more alive. And what I will say about Andy is I realized later, the passage, the line which says, you will be called the rebuilder of broken walls. So he didn't glow. He was exhausted. But he was able in his time in the office, one of the unique things I know he did was to repair some relationships that had gone askew in that office over years. And he, just in the way that he's been gifted, 
yeah, he was leading an office freeing slaves, but he, there was some repairing that took place. And I said to him one day, oh, you're the repairer of broken walls. You know that lovely thing? I didn't expect you to get, I thought you were going to be shiny, exhausted, <laughs> grey repairer of broken walls. I'll take that. Um, I probably should close soon. Um, I wanted to just quickly tell you about Gary, who is a person of great hope. I have met her, uh, which was awesome. I met her on the day of her graduation, as it were, after her two years of aftercare. Um, She was working in a brick kiln, and when she tried to leave, the owner beat her children. He kicked her in the stomach. She'd had an operation. He split open her stitches. Her husband died. She had no means of income, and instead of being broken by it, she said, this is not okay. She stood up to the slave owner, and so she got beaten again, but eventually she'd encountered someone from International Justice Mission who came, found out where she was working, and rescued her and her family and the other, and the other workers. She now mentors young women in her village who are victims of domestic abuse. They come to her house, and she talks to them about rising up and being courageous and being strong. I've, met, I've been in the same room as this lady. She, uh, everyone says, oh, isn't it? She's so short. And it's like, oh, you know, it's not helpful to talk about the fact that she's not tall, but I, she's a diminutive person. And in India already, if you're a woman, you're kind of second down the ladder and the rung of the ladder. So she's an extraordinary person. And thanks to IGM, she is now not only uh, encouraging others, but here she is speaking to 400 uh, government officials and rescued laborers. So she's a voice in the community. She's a force thanks to International Justice Mission going in and rescuing her. All right. What can we do? So, um, because I like action, sometimes when people say you can pray, you go, yeah, but I, yeah, I want to do a bit more than that. But actually, I can honestly tell you that this work won't get done without a huge movement of prayer. So, Edward and Catherine. Who else? Hands up. Who does the monthly? Thank you. Hands up. One, three. Yes. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. Do you want more people to come or are you okay as you are? More people? More people. Yeah. More people praying. Okay. And I can guarantee that the night of the week of the month that your prayer meeting is will be the most inconvenient evening of your whole month. You're going to have 10 other things that are going to come up. You're not going to want to go. You're going to feel a bit ropey. Your kids are going to need you at home to do homework. Everything is going to stand in your way to get to that meeting. I don't know if you've already experienced that, but I can pretty much guarantee it's going to happen. You will face a wall of getting to that meeting. If you can't get there, pray at home. But it's happening. So talk to those people. You can pray. It makes all the difference. Money, I know, I know, I know. But it costs £3,000 to mount a rescue operation. There was one time in the office I said to Andy, he's talking about we need some more hidden cameras. You know, the investigators go in with hidden cameras. Uh, and I said, well, you know, get another one. We haven't got any money for another camera at the moment. Um, it's, it's a charity. It's, uh, it needs our resources. And actually, if that's something that you want to be challenged on, then give your money. You can even text right now. So, young people, you're allowed to be on your phones. You probably already are. <laughs> Sorry, that was really... My kids would be so cross if they heard me say that. Um, you can send a text, and I'll keep that with me afterwards, so you can do that right now. Or, at the back, there's a table where you can sign up to give uh, a monthly offering. Um, equally, um, at the back, there's going to be a sign-up sheet where you can just hear the news of what's going on. You'll get a newsletter every month by email or in the post as to what is happening so that you know when you've prayed how the prayers are answered. It's a movement, and it's going to take a movement across the world. Um, and I would say also there are some specific student resources as well for you to get involved in. 
I cannot tell you enough how much we have been changed by IJM, how my whole mindset is now geared much more towards justice, refugees, what beautiful, beautiful work that you're doing, uh, and, and slavery. There is also an enormous amount of slavery going on in the UK. You will have heard the last couple of weeks, a lot of press, certainly the Evening Stand in London and the Independent, reports of slavery in the UK. So while International Justice Mission works globally, the UK office doesn't actually do rescues in, 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 in England, but, it, but they're very much an advocacy operation. So it's something we all need to wake up to, and it's something that God is passionate about, that breaks God's heart. And so I invite you, really, to, if you want to get deeper into your faith, if you want to be woken up and shaken up, if you just want something to change, if you want to see a difference, I invite you into partnering with us and getting stuck in with International Justice Mission and the work against slavery. Thank you.